Hey, thanks for checking out the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. A topless woman protests Greenbelt development at the Junos. More on the Millard and Smith court appeals. Niagara Falls downplays a new resort in Toronto. I share a great new study on procrastination. Find out what are the best movie songs of all time. And sick of meetings at work? Well, you're not alone. The GMH podcast begins now. This is the Good Morning Hamilton podcast on 900 CHML. Unequivocally, we won't touch the green belt. Uh, unlike other governments that don't listen to people, I've heard it loud and clear. People don't want me touching the green belt. We won't touch the green belt. But all my friends, I listen to you. You don't want me touching the green belt. We won't touch the green belt. Welcome back to Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHL. Rick will waking you up. Premier Doug Ford back in 2018, yes, five years ago, saying we won't touch the green belts. And five years later, the opposite is very much true. But to that end, you've probably seen at least the video or the pictures of this protester wearing pink pants and a matching pink headscarf, black socks, black shoes, and no top jump on the stage at the Juno Awards in Edmonton on Monday. And and on her body, on her her torso, were words about, well, the Trans Mountain Pipeline, uh, Indigenous movement, and saving the green belt. And so we thought we'd take this issue and talk about it in a number of ways, including in our Twitter poll question of the day at AM900CHML, does this sort of protest help or hurt the cause? Tim Gray is the Executive Director of Environmental Defense and joins us now on GMH. Tim, good morning. How are you? Good morning. I'm good. How are you? Not too bad. Let's get to the first topic. Is the Juno Awards protester in any way connected to environmental defense? Uh, No, she's not, but uh, she certainly was telling the naked truth, uh, it seems to me. (laughs) Will this protest, which, let's remind everyone, happen live on our national public TV broadcaster, help or hurt the Save the Greenbelt movement? You know, I think it uh, it raises awareness. I mean, there's a long history of nonviolent civil disobedience, and I think you know this falls into that category. You know, clearly millions of people would be seeing her. It's it's not something that we do. You know, we work on on public policy and uh, go to lots of boring meetings, but um, it it does raise the profile of the issue for sure. Where is this issue right now? I know some challenges have been made. There's, uh, you know, uh, an investigation looking into whether or not uh, the premier or the provincial government uh, crossed the line in terms of alerting developers to the availability of these lands. Where is environmental defense with this right now? Yeah, we're uh, working in a number of ways. Uh, In the Hamilton area, of course, we're in court. Um, You know, we're hoping to see the court strike down uh, the minister's decision to cancel the official plan in Hamilton and force the city to, instead of investing in housing inside of its boundaries, to sprawl onto farmland and the Greenbelt. So we're, we're very much taking a legal angle in Hamilton area. Um, and in other parts of the province where the Greenbelt was opened, we're working with municipal officials to try and ensure that rezoning from agricultural land, which what the Greenbelt is, into developable land doesn't happen. And uh, also that there's a thorough review by the federal government of the impacts of all of these changes uh, on areas of federal jurisdiction. So, you know, none of this is over. And as you mentioned, of course, both the Auditor General and the Integrity Commissioner um, have launched investigations uh, into these changes. And the OPP has been looking at it from the perspective of reviewing it for um, whether or not the government 
carried out a criminal breach of trust by a public official. Um, so there's a, a lot more to this story that's, that's still to come. When it comes to, and we've got a couple minutes to, to talk about this, when it comes to Hamilton's official plan uh, and that challenge in court, is everything on pause given the, the legal aspect of this? No, uh, it's not, unfortunately. Um, uh, our court case is a judicial review, which doesn't stop uh, any kind of development application coming forward. Um, it reviews the decision the minister made. So there will need to be other avenues pursued to try and stop that land from being rezoned um, at the municipal level. Are you confident you'll win this challenge or, or are you stacked up against it? You know, I think that uh, we have a very good chance of, of getting a positive decision from the court. Um, it's very clear that the city followed the proper rules under the Planning Act to decide to invest uh, in building homes and businesses inside of its boundaries and not uh, sprawling onto farmland in the green belt. In fact, both the Growth Plan and the Planning Act uh, strongly uh, dictate to municipalities to do that. So. The minister just overruling that with no rationale uh, does not seem legal to us, and we're hoping it's horrible. Well, as you know, uh, uh, that this is a very hot topic in the province, especially in this city. We'll continue to follow it, and uh, we'll touch base with you sometime into the future to talk about the latest developments. Tim, appreciate your time today. Thanks so much. Have a great day. You too. That's Tim Gray, Executive Director of Environmental Defense. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. For anybody charged uh, with first degree, multiple first degree murders who were given consecutive 25 year segments of parole and ineligibility. And they now have the ability to appeal those decisions. This is Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. That is the voice of John East, Hamilton criminal defense lawyer, who was a guest here on GMH yesterday. And uh, we're again talking about this appeals process in the Court of Appeal for Ontario, which is hearing from um, convicted killers Dellen Millard and Mark Smith a, a decade after the murders of Tim Bosma, Laura Babcock, and Wayne Millard. Someone who covered the Bosma murder trial top to bottom for 900 CHML a decade ago is Alex Pearson, the host of The Alex Pearson Show, weekdays 9 to noon on 640 Toronto, and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Alex, good morning. Welcome to the show. Good morning, Rick. Boy, it's uh, you know, when you hear the dates and you talk about them, it's hard to believe it's been this long. It just uh, the time has gone quickly. Absolutely. You know, unless you're the family. Yeah. For someone who covered this trial every day, you're in the court every day, mm-hmm. yeah. what's going through your mind when you hear that Millard and Smith are now appealing their convictions? Well, I'm not surprised. I mean, these are two people who absolutely have no uh, regard for any um, anybody, certainly not you know, the Babcocks, the Bosmas, or even the Millard family, um, you know, they don't care. It's all about them, and they have nothing else to do. So I'm not surprised they're appealing, um, you know, uh, and, and you know, this is what they'll do. And uh, it's always about the Dellen Millard show, right? Remember, he was the guy who had all the money. He's the guy that had all those idiots, you know, hanging around him, doing all these petty crimes. And he and Mark Smitch were kind of the ringleaders. Mark Smitch following his rich friend around because that's how he had his ticket to fun. And, you know, the, these are people that never showed remorse and, um, you know, did whatever they wanted. And so for them to be uh, in the courts does not surprise me. It, 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 it's more angering knowing that it's, it's a court decision and the trickle-out effect of the upper court's rules that really, you know, have such an impact on cases like this. 
Um, and so the Crown has already admitted in this that, uh, yeah, they will get those stacked sentences. Remember, Millard was um, convicted and sentenced to 25 years, so life sentences. But what they did, instead of just doing three 25-year sentences served at the same time, you know, we have legislation from 2011 that would allow the judge to stack the sentence. In other words, 25 years, another 25 years, another an actual life sentence before you can apply for, for, for parole. Um, and sadly, with the court ruling in 2022 saying that that was not fair, both he and Smitch likely very much will be able to reduce their sentences so that they can apply for parole. Whether they get the convictions overturned, I highly doubt it. It's not like the judges in these cases were not careful. They knew how high profile they were. So I don't see any kind of, you know, I don't see them having a lot of luck with the with the convictions they're trying to overturn. But certainly we will see reduced sentences, which is, you know, just a travesty. You're referring to the uh, recent Supreme Court ruling yeah. on, on the penalty that was handed to yeah. the Quebec City mosque massacre uh, individual who's now behind bars. Those consecutive, you know, the, the judges yeah. calling the consecutive life sentences cruel. And I, <laughs> I only think that, listen, uh, cruel things were done to these victims like Tim Bosma, mm-hmm. like Laura Babcock, like Wayne Millard. I mean, that was the cruel part of this whole thing. Oh, it's horrific. I mean, the, the upper court um, ruled that, you know, Alexandra Bissonnette, who killed six Muslims in prayer, shot another five and tried to kill them, but would have killed as many as he could. You know, he took his case. He got sack sentences, too. He was going to be in for 150 years. Um, and because of the Supreme Court ruling saying, well, you know, he still has to have hope. And I'm thinking, really? Convicted killers? who do the worst crimes in our in our society, they also have to have hope. What about the Bosnians? Do they get to get hope? What about the, the, the Babcocks? Do they get to get hope? It's such an insult to victims of crime in this family whose lives are completely and utterly destroyed that the Charter, um, you know, protects the rights and, and makes sure that our worst people of society have hope. And these people just have to be um, dragged once again through the process. And so, you know, the Babco- Babcocks, the the Bosnians, they have to come into Toronto to this appeal court uh, and, you know, listen to the details again. They have to listen to Dell and Millard mock the system, mock them. It's just, the whole thing is just gross. And if they do win their appeals, at least in terms of the stacked convictions, the con- the consecutive yeah. life sentences, in, in 15 years, the, the Bosma mm-hmm. family, the Babcock family, I'm assuming someone from the Millard family are going to have to make victim impact yeah. statements once again. It's, it's just re-victimizing the victim again. Yeah, I mean, like the French and the Mahaffey family, who's, you know, you never think that 25 years will come. And it's so, like, now I've been in the business so long that the court cases I was covering when I started out, when, you know, you see that conviction and that life sentence, you think, well, there they go. They're never getting out. And all these people now are starting to get out, Rick. And so it's not inconceivable that in, you know, 10, 15 years, you know, these cases are going to be up again. And and like the French and Mahaffey family, the Bosmas, uh, and the Babcocks will have to spend their life every year, every two years, fighting and trying to plead with the courts as to why these people never deserve um, a day of freedom. And they don't, Rick. I mean, these are not people who ever saw any wrong in what they were doing. I mean, they mocked the killing of, of Tim Bosman. They, they didn't care. They wanted his truck. They, he was just another thrill for them. And, and Laura Babcock, I mean, her family, they don't even have anything left of her. You know, at Tim Bosma, they were able to kind of get a few little fragments of, of his remains out of that incinerator, but they don't have anything for Laura Babcock. And, um, you know, there's a real tragedy here. 
Um, and so it's a real sum of the nose, I think, at, at, at society at large that we even have to you know, entertain this. But this is the system we have. And the likelihood, and we only have a minute, the likelihood of either mm-hmm. of these guys getting out ever is probably extremely remote. But well, the fact of the matter is that, you know, in 15 years time or whatever the case, when their parole is up, you know, these families are having to relive, rethink about the what ifs. And that's that's tragic. Yeah, I mean, the reality is, and I hear all the time of people who I never thought would see the light of day, who killed, I know, of a couple of the Randall Dooley case here in Toronto, of a child who was beaten to a, uh, within, well, he was beaten over a series of months that he was killed. Uh, you know, these people never should have gone out, and yet they're out now 19 years later. So while we think it's inconceivable that Mark Smith and Dylan Millard uh, would never get out, um, who knows in this day and age? Millard's got obviously, um, you know, the extra conviction against him, but nothing would surprise me anymore. And I just think at some point we have to have the scales of justice tip back. You know, there's got to be a balance. And, and, and you get cases like this and it really makes I think people question. So no question about it. I think my prediction already with the Crown saying they will get reduced sentences because of the precedent set in the Alexander Bissonnette case. Um, but I'm not holding my breath that they will uh, get their uh, convictions overturned, and nor should they, nor should they. Agree with that. Alex, appreciate your time. Uh, Best of luck on the show today. You too. Take care. Alex Pearson, host of the Alex Pearson Show, weekdays 9 to noon on 640 Toronto, where sister station just down the highway covered the Tim Bosma murder trial for 900 CHML, uh, geez, 10 years ago. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Well, there could be a lot of people saying... Viva Toronto, Viva GTA, Viva Woodbine Racetrack area. All the while, people in Niagara Falls are like, ugh, come on already. So what's going on? Well, let me tell you this. Toronto has built a Las Vegas-style resort and casino. This is the real deal. They have spent some big bucks on this to the tune of $1 billion. And this resort includes a casino, a 400-room hotel, that's going to officially open this summer next to Woodbine Racetrack. Eight restaurants. They all include fine dining and gastropubs. This complex will have a 5,000-seat venue for things like concerts and special events. And when it comes to the casinos, this Las Vegas-style resort is going to have the most slot machines in any one place. 4,800 slots, as well as nearly 150 gaming tables. And so you can imagine that people in Niagara Falls, where they're tourism heavy, of course, and have casinos, are up in arms. Janice Thompson is the president and CEO of Niagara Falls Tourism and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Janice, good morning. How are you? Hey, good morning, Rick. Your thoughts on this uh, this project, which is going to be in direct competition with what you're doing in Niagara Falls? Well, I certainly can't speak for the casinos. They would speak for themselves, but on the impact to them, if any. Uh, but I can say that we've been aware of this for more than five years now. It's been in construction. It's been in development. And Niagara Falls itself, as a, as a destination, is known as a truly remarkable place. It's somewhere that, you know, people can come and they have a very dependable, memorable experience. So we believe that the marketing that we're doing now that reaches out to, you know, GTA, Quebec, and now that we can, we're advertising across the border into the United States. And that's where we see our market recovery is going to be coming this year from attracting visitors from over the border. What kind of tourism numbers are you attracting from the GTA right now? And how could this project impact that? 
Well, overall, we have 14 million visitors a year here in Niagara Falls, and currently about 40% of them are coming from um, from the province of Ontario, generally. But they come for many, many reasons. You know, Niagara Falls, of course, has the international icon of the falls itself. We have the natural attractions, the trails, the cycling paths, the walking paths, all of the wonderful live entertainment that's here in the city, as well as the special attractions that have been here for many years, and they've built their own attractions in terms of a market itself. So the casinos, of course, are, are a big part of that, but they are part of a, a broad experience that we offer. Our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML is Janice Thompson, President and CEO of Niagara Falls Tourism. We're talking about a, a casino and um, a Las Vegas-style resort in Toronto that many people think is going to impact uh, the tourism in Niagara Falls. Is, is anything special or new going to be done for Niagara Falls casinos given that they might lose a little bit to this Toronto uh, complex? Well, as I say, I can't speak for the casinos themselves, but I can speak to the wonderful excitement that we feel in the air right now with the recent opening of the 5,000-seat OLG stage. We had Billy Joel there for the opening night. It was a wonderful demonstration of what the casino group is capable of delivering in terms of entertainment. And the future lineup that they've announced is very, very impressive. So that is a huge game changer for our city. I do know within the casinos complex themselves, they have over 20 dining establishments. They offer high-quality experiences. They offer unique experiences for people. So I think we're very well positioned from all angles to be competitive. Got a couple more minutes in this segment. It's, it's March break. I'm sure there's a lot of things to do in Niagara Falls. What's the number one thing on your list? Well, here in Niagara Falls, it's the joy of seeing people being outside, being with their family and friends, being in groups and walking, seeing the falls, many people seeing it for the first time. Uh, it's just a real joy to see their faces light up with wonder to see this natural attraction. And then, of course, to see that, you know, our, uh, our industry is back to life. People are working again. They're, they're, they're back in their attractions, in their businesses. And they're here delivering that Niagara Falls well-known hospitality to all who show. For, so we're very, very happy. We're, we're three years into the pandemic. Are we seeing a lot of uh, Americans coming over the border to experience what Niagara Falls has to offer? Not at the moment. We're seeing a, a slow recovery from America. We're seeing the uh, bridge traffic, in fact, is down 50% from where it was in 2019. But uh, as I said, we're focused on marketing to those Americans to pass on the message that at the moment the exchange rate is so favorable for the Americans. And we know we have a large contingent of people who rely on the experiences that they've had here in Niagara Falls in the past. And they want to come back and relive those memories and introduce their family to them. So we're very optimistic in that regard. Well, Niagara Falls is always a special place to visit, uh, to work, play, and uh, have a little fun as well. Janice, appreciate your time this morning. My pleasure, Rick. Thank you. As Janice Thompson, President and CEO of Niagara Falls Tourism, doesn't sound uh, too concerned about this new Las Vegas-style resort and casino in Toronto. I'm sure the casinos in the falls have some plans to uh, limit the impact, let's uh, call it that, in terms of what they're going to have to deal with with this 
big competition down the QEW. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. New study out of Brock University suggests our tendency to procrastinate starts in childhood. Truth be told, I was going to do this interview yesterday, and then I decided, you know what, I'm just going to put it off. No, I'm just kidding. The new study is published in this month's issue of the scientific journal Development Psychology. So how did researchers study this? And more importantly, what did they find? Caitlin May is an associate professor of psychology at Brock University, the study co-author, and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Caitlin, good morning. How are you? I'm well, thanks. Thank you so much for having me. Where did this idea originate from? So it was sort of a, a convenient uh, confluence of a number of things. So one factor was that one of my undergraduate students came to me with the idea of studying procrastination. And this was during the pandemic when I was spending a lot of time at home with my own preschool aged children. So um, given that my lab studies future thinking in early childhood, I thought, hey, this is really something we should look at in early childhood. So that's how we sort of um, narrowed in on this preschool age range to study the early emergence of procrastination. So how was this research conducted? So because it was during the pandemic, we did this research online and we asked parents to fill out a number of questionnaires about their children's behavior. So we asked them to complete a questionnaire about their children's procrastination tendencies, their children's executive function or what we think of as self-control, and also their ability to think about the future. And so what did you find? So we found that well, maybe not surprisingly to a lot of parents, that young, very young <laughs> children procrastinate. So they put things off. Uh, and we also asked parents to give examples of the last time their child uh, procrastinated. So we found that there was evidence that even children as young as three or four did put off tasks. But they tended to put off things like cleaning up messes that they made or engaging in bedtime routines or mealtime routines. Whereas older children, so five or six-year-olds, tended to put off doing homework or doing chores. We also found um, that procrastination did tend to increase a little bit with age. It was a small effect. And that children who tended to procrastinate more had worse self-control and were poorer at thinking about the future. So why is that? How did you figure that part out? So we looked at basically relationships between what parents said about children's procrastination, their self-control, and their future thinking. And then we looked at how these things were related. And that's how we figured out sort of the individual difference piece, which is basically an individual child, if they were better at, if they were, sorry, if they procrastinated more, they showed uh, worse self-control and worse future thinking. Interesting stuff. Our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML, Caitlin May, Associate Professor of Psychology at Brock University and a co-author of the study, The Emergence of Procrastination in Early Childhood. Did you expect to uncover the level of procrastination that you found? You know, I, again, as a parent, I was not surprised that very young children uh, procrastinated. So I, I, I wasn't that surprised. But I think there is an assumption that young children don't have any tasks that are undesirable in their daily life. But I think a lot of parents and teachers realize that we assign children a lot of tasks that they don't want to do. So children might not want to brush their teeth or put on their pajamas. Uh, and then they 
put these things off because they'd rather do other things like play with their toys or, or you know, do other uh, more uh, fun tasks. So can parents do anything about this? Yeah, that's a great question. And, and definitely we need to do further research to look into this. But I think it's really important to uh, break down tasks into simple steps with young children. Um, I also think rewards are important, right? Because the, the reason we don't want to do tasks and the reason we often procrastinate uh, is because we don't find them rewarding. Um, so I think giving children rewards for doing undesirable tasks might be an effective strategy. Uh, but also just realizing that this isn't normative part of development, right? And although it's procrastination is maybe an undesirable behavior, um, it, it is it is normative and there's nothing necessarily wrong if a child is putting off tasks. But I think we as parents, as teachers, we can encourage children to get things done and potentially even encourage children to think about, well, how you're going to feel really good once you get this task out of the way and think about how you'll feel in the future. That might be a possible strategy for encouraging them to procrastinate less. Is procrastination a learned behavior or are children looking at us or other adults? and saying, well, they're not doing it. So the next time I got to do something, I'll just put it off. That's a great question. I think we, we need to do more studies to, to look at that. But I can say, um, based on a, another study in my lab, that uh, procrastination does seem to be related to some um, really early emerging personality traits and temperament. So I don't think it's necessarily learned, although it could there could be some learning that goes on um, and children learning from others around them. Uh, but I think it is related to some, some basic, um, temperamental traits, uh, like how conscientious you are, um, how impulsive you are. Um, so it does seem to be something, I don't want to say it's, um, necessarily biological, but it, it does seem to be, um, something that children's personality has a strong influence on. Last one for you. Everyone under the sun procrastinates in some form. Is it bad for you? I mean, I actually think the reason we procrastinate is because it's an emotion regulation strategy, right? It may not be a great strategy, but it does prioritize our current state, right? So we don't want to do a task. So we say, okay, we'll do it later. And that's really part prioritizing our current state of happiness, right? But the problem is that when we put that undesirable task off, uh, that's when the anxiety can, some, can sometimes build and the stress builds because it's hanging over our head. So everyone procrastinates. Um, it definitely has a role and, and play, plays a role in emotion regulation. It just may not be the best strategy for emotion <laughs> regulation because it does sort of build up um, with that anxiety and the stress over time. Really interesting study, fascinating analysis from Caitlin May. Thanks for your time and uh, be well. We'll talk to you down the road. Thank you so much. Caitlin May, Associate Professor of Psychology at Brock University. You can check out the study in the March issue of the scientific journal, Developmental Psychology. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. What movie is popping in your brain right now listening to this song, Eye of the Tiger, Survivor? It's got to be Rocky Three, right? Well, it is well in the mix in terms of the best movie songs of all time, according to Billboard, as we welcome you back to Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Billboard out with its list of the all-time greatest movie songs. 
And there's not a lot of gray area with this because they base the the rankings, this is a top 65 list, on a point system, depending on how they were ranked when they were released on the Billboard chart. Which song is at the top of Billboard's list? What song connected to a movie is at the top of your list? Eric Alper is a music commentator and publicist and joins us now on GMH. Eric, good morning. Welcome back to the show. Oh, happy to do it. And you know what? If you don't get revved up by listening to Eye of the Tiger at 8.50 in the morning, nothing is going to do it for the rest of your day. Yeah, just call it a day. Go back to bed. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Interesting to note that this, uh, I did not know this, that Sylvester Stallone initially wanted Another One Bites the Dust by Queen for Rocky Three, and the group said, no, we're not going to allow you to use it. And so he went with Eye of the Tiger, which was a pretty good choice. Yeah, you know, this is how sometimes things work out is, um, you know, Sly Stone wanted to have that song by Queen, but Queen was just like, yeah, no, we're just going to pass on it. We don't think it's really cool. Um, And uh, so Sylvester Stallone ended up getting um, a a band called Survivor that he knew of. Um, They got the song. And in fact, there's a third verse in the song that wasn't really supposed to be in there, but Sylvester Stallone told the band that they need to make the song a little bit longer. um, And, uh, so the band wrote a third verse for it. Um, and the band was really surprising because normally actors, when they give advice like that, it's usually really wrong. Um, but in this case, Sylvester Stallone was, was pretty right on with it. Some of the top movie songs that are not in the top 10, and by the way, Survivor, Eye of the Tiger is number four on Billboard's list. Here are some of the iconic songs not in the top 10. You're the one that I want from Greece by John Travolta and Olivia Newton-John at number 56. Dolly Parton's 9 to 5 for the movie 9 to 5 is 42nd. Ray Parker Jr. with Ghostbusters, 35th. Kenny Loggins' Footloose is 29th. And Prince at number 18 when Doves Cry for Purple Rain is number 18. There's there's one song in the list that, uh, that is actually not on the list that I thought should definitely be on the list. I'm not sure why it's not is Celine Dion's My Heart Will Go On for Titanic. And I'm not sure why that wasn't included, because that that's a mega hit. It's a massive hit. And you know what? I agree with you. I did a search for the word Celine like eight times to make <laughs> sure that I wasn't missing it. She appears at number 20 with Because You Loved Me. I'm not so sure why. Um, You know, the cynic in me says... Well, maybe they're taking a page out of Rolling Stone mm-hmm. um, when they did their list of the greatest singers of all time and left Celine Dion off and ended up going viral worldwide for all the wrong or the right reason, depending on, you know, if you're controlling that site, um, because they probably end up with, oh, uh, probably a half a billion hits to their website. So I think that the them leaving off that song, that's certainly a strange one for sure, because that's certainly one of the most popular songs from a movie ever. We're reflecting on Billboard's list of best movie songs. They've released these 65 top all-time songs, and they say it's based on a ranking point system, depending on how they ranked during their time on the Billboard chart. And we're in discussion with Eric Alper, publicist and music commentator here on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. I want to reflect on numbers 10 through 6, and then I'm going to ask you which one is the most iconic in your mind. We have Staying Alive by the Bee Gees, Call Me by Blondie, Boys to Men with End of the Road, 
Whitney Houston's I Will Always Love You, and the Bee Gees' Saturday Night Fever, Night Fever. Most iconic in your set, in your mind of those five. Yeah, I, 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 it's hard to argue any time that Whitney Houston is on a list. But for me personally, um, Staying Alive is such a great song. Um, it's still one of those unmatched disco classics that um, the minute that you put it on, within the first couple of seconds, you know that beat and you have that image of John Travolta strutting um, down um, the New York City Boulevard. Um, that is exactly what a, a, a song like this should do is put you right back into those movie scenes that you re- remember watching. Um, and it's still such a great song. So I got to say, Staying Alive. BG's also in the top five as well. Which song resonates with you the most? Irene Cara, Flashdance at number five. Survivor, Eye the Tiger at four. BG's How Deep Is Your Love for the movie again, Saturday Night Fever at third. Brian Adams, Everything I Do, I Do It For You. And the Robin Hood Prince of Thieves movie is second and number one on the list. Diana Ross and Lionel Richie, Endless Love for the movie Endless Love. Which is resonating with you the most there? Yeah, I, I, you know, Endless Love was a big surprise, even though that it was named the biggest duet hit of all time. Um, everything I do, I do for you was massive. Um, and for, um, you know, when the producers of Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, heard the song, they hated it. Um, they thought it it was too modern, and they wanted something a little bit more old timey, using older instruments. Um, so they stuck it in the middle of the last part of the credits of the movie. <laughs> That's just how low they thought that this was going to be. Um, but I <laughs> I think Eye of the Tiger is is one of those songs that is used not only in Rocky Three, but in over a half a dozen other movies and over three dozen other TV shows because it's so symbolic of the underdog, of coming back, of of you know, rising up. And I, I just, it's so cheese from 1982. <laughs> and it reminds me so much of my childhood. So I'm going to say that even though, you know, it's funny, like Endless Love. I think if you were to ask 100 people to name the greatest song from a movie of all time, 100 people would not mention that one. I agree with you there. I'm, I'm, and I'm with you with Eye of the Tiger as well. It gets you pumped up, ready for the day, and uh, maybe the champion of movie songs. Eric, thanks for the time today. Enjoy it. Thank you so much for having me. We'll talk soon. That's Eric Alper, publicist and music commentator. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. We have a meeting planned today at the office, or, or maybe it's a virtual one. You got your team set up or Zoom call, or whatever the case is. You're working remotely or you're a hybrid employee and you got a meeting today. Do you think it's going to be a productive one? Is it one that you really want to go to? Are you going to be engaged in it? Are you going to bring something to the table? Are any new ideas going to be shared? Well, there's a new survey out. It's from Future Forum that show a lot of people just don't like going to these meetings. So much so that bosses say nearly half of the meetings that are held at work should be entirely scrapped and uh, it could be done without any negative impact on business. Think about that for a second. Nearly half of the meetings that are held at your workplace could be deleted and no one would blink an eye and whether it's the bottom line or workplace morale or whatever the case is, there would be no negative impact in doing so. 
And so this survey, and again, by future form, it surveyed more than 10,000 desk workers, shows that executives spend an average of 25 hours a week in meetings. But nearly half of those could disappear again without any negative impact. And it, it made me think about the show The Office, because there were constant meetings in that workplace. We are going to make a do not mock list, okay? Anything that we think might be out of bounds, we put on this list. Anything you put on this list, you cannot be teased about. Got it? I'm gonna kick it off. Let's see what I have to put on the list, right? Okay. I also have fallen into the fountain at the Steamtown Mall. Okay, who else? Who else? Dwight, come on. I don't want people making fun of my nose. Your nose? It's too small. So the office had certainly some amusing meetings. And if, if you were in a workplace and you had meetings like that, you might want to go to more and more meetings. The fact of the matter is, many meetings are not that funny or interesting or engaging. Workers are in meetings, it seems, all the time. You're meeting with someone. And the number one reason, according to the survey, why bosses take part in these unproductive meetings is that they thought it would be a good use of time, but ultimately it was not. And executives also attended these meetings because, well, they're afraid to miss something important. You know, there's a meeting scheduled, you don't show up, and you're wondering, well, what did I miss? Did something big happen? Did someone say something? Did someone do something? Is there a new project coming down the pipe? I got to be in the know. Another reason why executives attend all these unproductive, useless meetings is to show their manager that they are working. Hey, I'm at the meeting. I'm doing something. I'm engaged. I'm part of the process. Let's move the ball forward collectively. For those lower down the corporate ladder, the underlings, if you will, the most common reason for showing up at a meeting is, well, it's quite obvious. They really don't have a choice. They have no pull whatsoever in the workplace. It kind of sounds like this guy. Uh, we have sort of a problem here. Yeah, you apparently didn't put one of the new cover sheets on your TPS reports. Oh, yeah. I'm sorry about that. I, I forgot. Mm, yeah. You see, we're putting the cover sheets on all TPS reports now before they go out. Did you see the memo about this? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I have the memo right here. I just uh, forgot. But uh, it's not shipping out till tomorrow, so there's no problem. Yeah. If you could just go ahead and make sure you do that from now on, that would be great. That would be great. Uh, these findings, again, we're talking about workplace meetings and how they're pretty much useless, or at least half of them are, and they could disappear without any negative impact, all from a survey of more than 10,000 desk workers by Future Forum. The findings come, as we know, as many businesses are reflecting on their meeting schedules. Which ones can be scrapped as we operate in a hybrid world? You might work at a workplace where everyone's back or it's still what it has been over the last three years now during this pandemic and, and very remote. Very few workers are in the workplace. Either way, whether you're meeting in person or virtual, many companies are reflecting on whether or not all these meetings 
are needed. Shopify, probably the most famous business out there, to make a move on meetings. It has deleted 320,000 hours of meetings this year. And they've done so by making multiple moves. Number one, ending all recurring meetings with more than two people. There is a ban on meetings at Shopify on Wednesdays. You cannot have a meeting on Wednesdays. They've also limited the number of big gatherings because the bigger the meeting, well, the more voices are in there, the more ideas are shared, the longer that meeting gets. And sometimes they get a little unproductive, especially when you get off track. And Shopify also encouraging staff to decline some invites. That, that would be a refreshing memo from the boss. Hey, we're having a meeting today, but you don't have to come. You know, it's not really that important. We're meeting about something, but if you don't want to come, we'll fill you in later. That would be so refreshing. I'm not sure how many of you out there get that kind of memo. Hey, we're having a meeting, but yeah, you don't really have to show up. We'll figure it out. There is another survey that found that going to non-critical meetings, and how many meetings do you go to that are actually critical? <laughs> going to non-critical meetings wastes about $100 million a year at big organizations. That's a lot of money. That money can be put to many other things out there, that is for sure. One more about meetings. The fundamentals of business. The fundamentals of business. Mental is a part of the word. I have underlined it. Because you're mental, if you don't have a good time, you have to enjoy it. Well, the, the fun is in it. Michael Scott forgot about the fun part of the meeting. Say, if you're having a meeting today, have some fun, share some ideas, be productive. But then again, you don't really have to go. Thanks for listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday mornings from 530 to 9 on 900 CHML and online at 900CHML.com. The Good Morning Hamilton podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your favorite podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure you rate and review.